We find ourselves back in Genesis chapter 2 today. And we'll be covering verses 4 through 25, but as we get started, I just want to read verses 4 through 9. So if you would follow along with me as I read this passage. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into him, into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the word of God. Please be seated. If I were to ask you where you feel most in your element, most at home, what, what images come to your mind? I trust all of us have those certain activities where we feel like we are just naturally inclined to enjoy them, whether it is competitive events that bring us peace, that bring us joy, or perhaps it's an extracurricular activity you are able to enjoy. I'm sure it would include a certain group of people or maybe just one particular person, type of person that makes you feel at ease, that makes you feel secure. We envision these moments where we don't have to perform for anyone. We're able to just really be ourselves. And in those moments, we feel most like ourselves. And as such, we are at rest. We experience great joy. We, of course, understand how great this feeling is, though, only in light of of those many other feelings we experience when we're out of our element, when we don't feel at home, when we're doing a job we don't feel qualified to do, and we feel just utterly exposed We have that feeling when we are around people that we don't really know too well or maybe we don't trust. And so we're having to put up that facade, always trying our best to put this perfect picture before them so as to avoid judgment, so as to avoid being mocked and ridiculed. Many of us have that feeling in our day-to-day jobs, perhaps, where we feel like we're being misused. Sadly, many people even have this feeling in their own home where they just don't feel loved, they don't feel well cared for. We understand this is part of life, and tragically, most of us just assume this is just the way it is. That is to say, those moments of rest, those moments of happiness are always, by definition, fleeting. You just have to get used to it. What we find incredibly, however, is as we get into Genesis 2, we see that wasn't always the case. In fact, we see that's not by God's design. For when we look at the act of creation, we see God designed us in the beginning to always feel at home. Not just in a a few particular activities, but in everything man was called to do, in every relationship man had, he felt secure and loved and known and accepted. That sense of home, however, of course, was only found in Eden. And as we'll dive into it today, we'll see that that life and that sense of being at home was always intended to be connected, not to just complete freedom, but connected to close proximity to God, living at his hand. It was always tied to our ongoing service to God and it was always tied to experiencing right relationships with fellow image bearers of God. It's a beautiful picture that we see explored by Moses in Genesis 2. 
And as beautiful as it is, and while it might seem like a long, distant memory, what is so beautiful about this is that it's not meant to be left in that ancient past. For God's design for us has not changed. And therefore, our sense of belonging has not changed. It is still characterized and defined by those same moments, by those same characteristics. And by the grace of God, it is that sense of home, that sense of prosperity, that sense of security that all of us as believers are ultimately longing for and look forward to enjoying for all eternity. And so my prayer this morning is that as we examine Genesis 2, as we see the second picture of creation, the creation of man, we might be reacquainted with that proper sense of home. And in so doing, might we grow in our longing for that home and remember that it still is possible today. In particular, it still is the reality that waits us for in our future. That being said, let me go and open us up in a word of prayer and we'll discuss where we are naturally most at home. Bow your heads in prayer with me, if you will. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you already for the songs of worship we are able to sing to you. What a reminder it is of your love, of your grace, of your glory. We thank you already for the picture of the gospel we have seen in the baptism of Gabriel and Maddie. God, what a powerful reminder of your hand at work in their lives. We praise you for their courage and getting up for so many people, having their stories told and, and walking out in obedience to you. And I pray that their act of obedience might be an example for those young believers here who have not yet followed you in, in obedience to baptism. I pray their obedience to you might be an encouragement to all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray their profession of faith might be a powerful witness to all men, women, and children here today as it's a reminder that it does not matter your age, it does not matter your ability, it does not matter about your background. All that matters is whether or not you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. We praise you for their example. As we continue to explore Genesis 2 today, I pray that we might continue to be amazed by your hand. Might we continue to be amazed by the beauty of your creation, and might we see in Genesis 2 a reminder of where you always intended us to dwell. God, in this picture, might we be convicted. Might we see where we are failing to live in line with your word. But might we ultimately be encouraged, knowing that this garden is not just a garden of the past, but it ultimately is a foretaste of the far more glorious, far more beautiful garden that we will live in for all eternity. Cause us to see that garden more vividly, more clearly this morning, and in that vision, cause us to live in greater obedience to you here in the wilderness. We love you, God. We praise you. We pray your blessing to be upon us at this time. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, as I already mentioned, in Genesis 2, we'll be exploring how man is naturally, by God's design, only at home when they live in the hand of God, in service to God, and in relationships with other God image, or image bearers of God. But before we dive into that first point, one side note that is worth mentioning is that some of you, many people over the centuries, are initially confused by Genesis 2. For as it starts off, it might seem as if Moses has a, a serious case of short-term memory loss. It would seem as if he forgot that he already told us how creation worked. And what's even worse, it seems as if he's contradicting himself in chapter 2. For first glance, it, it looks like he's telling it in a different order, as if Moses is saying, well, if you didn't believe that first one, try this on for size, Right? But we understand, of course, that there's more to it than that. For while it might be initially confusing to many readers today, 
The fact of the matter is, is that Moses really is following after the same pattern of so many other ancient Near Eastern texts, specifically when it comes to works regarding creation. For as we've seen in other messages, Moses is writing a story that would have been well known, and every culture had their own tale along these lines. Like those other stories, then, Moses has already spent the first chapter with an overview, a sweeping vision of creation. And his concern in that first telling is to show that order of days. It's to put the display of God's power and glory before us. Having already dealt with that grand, overarching, sweeping view of creation, in chapter 2, Moses has a different aim. That aim specifically is to hone in on not seven days, but on one day. Specifically, day six. And as he hones in, as he puts the microscope on this one day of creation, namely the creation of man, his aim is to show us how we were designed and ultimately show us again how we ought then to live. We see this in a number of ways here in Genesis chapter 2. And from the outset, we are reminded that we are designed and we are, are supposed to live directly in the hands of God. That is our first point. To see that point, we can pick up our text in verses 7 through 9. There again we read, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here it seems the canvas has already been prepared to use the language of previous weeks. God has prepared the earth, prepared the soil so that everything can grow that is supposed to grow, but he does not yet have that proper creature to cultivate it all, to expand the garden. To remedy that situation then, God creates man. Day six. And there are three particular aspects of this creation that that we must again take note of to properly appreciate both the importance of our close proximity to God, but also appreciate how radically different this vision was in the ancient Near East to what everyone else believed and is still so different from so many today. You can see those differences in three particular aspects. The first being, we are told in verse 7 that God formed man from the dust of the ground. God formed humanity. That language of of forming, again, is the language of of artistry. It's the language of a potter taking clay and carefully molding it. Putting in all the details that he saw fit for it, making it the perfect size, the perfect shape, the perfect image that was to reflect God, our creator. This imagery of a potter and clay... It's not unique to Genesis. It is a metaphor that's used time and time again to describe the language of, or describe the relationship between God and his creation. So you can read passages like Isaiah 29, 19, or Jeremiah 18, 5 through 6, in which God declares his right to do with whatever he wants with creation, for the potter has the right over the clay. And you see similar language used in other passages in which the creation of Israel or the choosing of Israel is being described. In each of these situations, just as in Genesis 2, the point is clear. God is the creator. We are not. We are purely in his hands. We are entirely under his sovereign control. This is very important for us to understand. 
But if we were to leave it there with this formation, it might suggest that God is some sort of wicked, overbearing ruler. That's not the picture of creation, is it? For we're not simply told that God forms man, we're also told, secondly, in that same verse, verse 7, that God then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. As a result, man became a living being. The second imagery is one that honestly, at first glance, might make some of us feel uncomfortable. For this is a very intimate picture. It's a picture of a kiss given by God to his creation. It's a picture then not simply of an artist molding the clay, but it's a picture of a creator proudly holding on to that which is beautiful, that which is good. We see the Bible speak of this delight that God has in his creation and other places as well. You can hear the same type of language used in Proverbs chapter 8 where wisdom is speaking of creation and we hear this language used. In Proverbs chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, wisdom personified here says, When he, that is God, made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight and the sons of men. It's a beautiful picture. For it shows that God did not simply think of a good idea and say, oh, I want to make this. It shows how deliberate God is. It shows the care and concern that God had for his creation. And as a result, as I mentioned already, what we have here is not just a picture of a potter with clay. We have an image of a mother holding her newborn baby. And if you've seen this, perhaps you can picture this. You, you see the mother holding that baby that she has carried. And yet in that moment, for the first time, she is gazing into the eyes of her child. And she is perhaps weeping with joy as she sees the baby in all of its beauty and all of its splendor. And as she is, for the first time, truly beginning to understand what it means to be a parent. If you've ever held the newborn of, of anyone you love, you uh, have a, a grasp of this feeling. And I think it is a fair picture of, of how God is pictured here in creation, tenderly holding on to us, loving us, seeing us as beautiful and as good. God's delight in his creation is made further clear by the fact that he does not simply create us and throw us out in the wilderness. No, what do we see that God also does in verses 8 through 9? Where does God place his new creation? In a garden. God, this tender, loving creator, plants a garden in the east. And it is in this garden of abundance that he places this unique image bearer of his. Again, to use the imagery of a newborn baby, we see here that like so many thoughtful parents, God has carefully prepared the nursery eagerly anticipates bringing his child back home to that room, carefully prepared with that child of mine, the same way God has this specific home for his child. A place where the child will be protected, a place the child will be secure, a place where the child will be able to thrive as he is called to thrive. 
Oftentimes, I think we lose sight of how precious this picture is. And if you're like me and have grown up in church, oftentimes it's easy to miss how different this is from from the vast majority of the beliefs throughout the world, particularly in Moses' day. For as I believe we've mentioned in weeks past, the, the creation of man in other ancient accounts is far more chaotic, far more violent. Man is a, an accidental result of blood being spilled, of God's dying, of war. Man is pictured not as a precious image bearer of God, but nothing more than a laborer. That's it. That sort of imagery then would have been key in explaining the, the obsession with war and violence in so many of these ancient cultures, because that's the design of man. But it was different for the Hebrew people. For they were created in his image, and they understood everyone was. Even when you look at the popular worldviews of today, you must appreciate how different the view of Scripture is than, than say, those who hold purely to macroevolution, some godless origin story. For try and try as they might, those defenders of that worldview must find our origin not in beauty, not in design, but in violent chaos, in the Big Bang, in an explosion in which we, again, are simply the result of an accidental occurrence. People who hold to this worldview will attempt to speak of it with wonder, but there is no cause for wonder in that story. For it robs man of beauty. It robs humanity of any concept of love and justice. And if it is taken to its logical conclusion, it ends only in the survival of the fittest. That is the only logical result of a chaotic, violent origin story. If that is our beginning, then we better defend ourselves tooth and nail, and kill anyone that stands in the way. Those stories are chaotic. Those stories are violent. Those stories speak nothing of the proper place of man in the hands of a loving, good creator. But from the beginning, Moses stresses the fact that it is in those hands that we belong. It is those hands which lovingly molded us. It is those hands that lovingly held us. It is those loving hands that provide for us, that feed us, that keep us going forward. Point being, as people today, we must understand we will only be at home. We will only feel secure when we remain in those hands. When we remember that dependence. When we remember the goodness of our Creator and the goodness and beauty of the creation in which we live. That is where we were intended to dwell. And from the outset, then again, as as Moses explores day six and as he reminds us of our design, he's reminding us that this is the proper place to live. He's telling the Hebrew people who are about to enter the promised land, do not forget your God. It is your God that's provided this. It is your God you live before. And so too, he is telling us today, do not forget the God who has saved you. Do not forget the God who saved Gabriel and Maddie. Do not forget the God that opened your eyes, the God that created you, the God that saved you from your sins. It is his hands and his hands alone that provide for you. This first imagery then is precious. As it paints this picture of a loving God, a loving parent preparing the nursery and bringing his child home. But as the story continues, what we see that is even more beautiful is that the setting in which God places man isn't so much a nursery but a temple. It is a place of worship. 
And if we are to feel at home in our own daily lives, what we must see is the second point, that man is only at home when he is in service to God in that temple. We see this described for us in verses 10 through 17. And so if you would, follow along with me as I read. And we see our place of service and our call to service. There Moses writes, Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It flows around the land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium of the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It flows out of the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Syria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Here, as Moses continues to expand our understanding of where we feel most at home, he reminds us what is to characterize our daily life. And what characterizes it is this act of service before God. And we see two important points regarding the service in this original creation account. The first is man's place of service. That place, as we all know from Genesis, is commonly referred to as the Garden of Eden. It is a name that carries with it all sorts of images. Probably for for all of us in here, we are at least vaguely familiar with this concept. What is so interesting, however, is despite how often people have imagined this place or how often this plays a part in popular culture, the Bible actually speaks very little about the original garden. And to say a physical description is limited. We, of course, see a few key points about what this garden must have been like. We understand that it was to the east, that is, it is assumed to the east of where Moses currently was serving. That direction will become more important in Genesis 3 as they're kicked out of the garden and removed further and further away. We can likely interpret, as many commentators do, that this garden was likely on an elevated plain, perhaps even a mountain. We see that from the fact that one river comes out and from it extends into four rivers which can water the entire land around it. Based off of the flow of those rivers, many commentators over the years have suggested this could have been a mountain. That makes sense in light of the fact that in ancient culture it was common to have images of of some mountaintop temple in which their gods lived. And we understand most clearly that this garden was characterized by beauty and by abundance. We see Moses using language of Genesis 1 when he speaks of the gold being good. Moses again is reminding us of the goodness of creation. He's reminding us that God in creation provided man with everything he needed to cultivate, to grow, to develop. The garden was rich with these resources. It was rich in its, its provision, and it was rich in its beauty. For as we saw earlier, these trees were not simply good for food, but they were pleasant to see. Again, in that, we see the artistry, the beauty of God on display. Not a lot more, however, really can be gained in understanding where this river was located, or where this garden was located specifically, even though certainly many cultures, many generations have attempted to find it even today. What we must note, however, is that as beautiful and as abundant as the garden must have been, 
What we understand as Scripture continues to develop is that the garden continues to play a pretty significant role. Not because of what it provided Adam and Eve, but because of what it came to represent for the people of God in the Old Testament and even for us today. You can see the significance tied to two particular points of emphasis in Scripture. The first is in the reference to the promised land. This would have no doubt been very personal, very important to the Hebrew people originally receiving this text. As many of you already know, the promised land, that land which was promised to the Hebrew people as they're going to be delivered out of Egypt, was a land famously described as a land, what? Flowing with milk and honey. It's a paradise. It's a land that has all of the rich resources in the soil that a nation would need to thrive, to survive. And as you read of that land in passages such as Genesis 15, or Exodus chapter 3, or even Joshua 1, time and time again, God emphasizes to his people that there is this land that I have set apart for you. A land I have prepared for you. A land where you will thrive. A land where you will be able to carry out my will. You read this language and understand it as the land set apart by God for his people. And it does not cause, or it does not require a great deal of imagination to see how the people of God would have clearly connected that to the garden. For knowing that Adam and Eve existed in the garden for such a short amount of time, the people of God now were thinking, okay, well, well here's our second chance. Here we go, returning to the garden. Perhaps we can finally stay there forever. There we can finally fulfill God's calling to us. That, however, is not the only place where the garden continues to to play a prominent role. For it also plays a prominent role in, in a place that I think we can oftentimes look over in Scripture. That place being the tabernacle or the temple. But as you read through those long chapters in books like Leviticus or even in 1 Kings, you see perhaps surprisingly that in the midst of these instructions, time and time again, God tells his people to include details of the Garden of Eden in the construction of the temple. And so, for instance, we don't have time to read through all of it, but if you have time later, I encourage you to read through passages like 1 Kings 16. From 1 Kings chapter 16, there are many references made to the inclusion of of things like pomegranates being carved into the wood. There are references there and elsewhere of, of pieces of furniture like the lampstand being modeled after the tree of life. Throughout the temple, then, as you walk in as a priest, you are surrounded by garden imagery. You're surrounded by carvings of trees, of fruits, of crops. And as you enter that place, then, you are being given a visual reminder of where you were intended to dwell. You're being reminded of that first garden and you are being reminded that existence in this garden can only be found in direct connection to the Creator. Therefore, you are reminded constantly of your need for obedience. This was a clear example for Israel to follow, but even as believers today, when we read in books like Revelation, we see the same imagery play a vital part. For as we'll see at the end of our service today, when we look at passages like Revelation 22, we see depictions of the new Jerusalem, we see the same garden imagery brought back to life. We see a great city with a river of life, we see a great city with a tree of life, we see this great city of beauty, of abundance, a place where we can finally thrive and thrive forever. 
a place where for the first time, man will be eternally secure. Moses then, in speaking of this garden in Genesis 2, is introducing to us this image that is key in understanding our role as creation. Our role as image bearers. He is giving us an image that will then play a powerful reminder for generations to come, both for Israel and for us today. But as he paints this imagery, he is quick to remind us, of course, that that the garden was not a place where mankind just laid around all day and slept. No, the garden was a place where man was to work. Again, look back at Genesis chapter 2 and we see this call to serve within that garden. In Genesis chapter 2, picking it back up in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Just as we spoke of last week, mankind was created to work. But not just just work in general, to work specifically for his creator. The language here in Genesis 2 is similar to the language of Genesis 1, this language of cultivating and keeping. As we spoke to it last week, this language carries with it the imagery of gardening. I know nothing about gardening personally. I'm pretty sure I would kill every plant um, that I was put responsible over. But even as a terrible gardener, I, I can appreciate this image, and perhaps some of you have greater knowledge of the act. You understand the labor that is required. You understand what goes into tilling the soil. You understand the the nature of carefully watering, carefully making sure that your plants receive the light they need. Tragically, that's about all the detail I can give in making this analogy. But you get the point. We understand the work that goes into it. And as the people of God, we are reminded that all labor... All work is to be done with this mentality. As I mentioned last week, this is not just work done in ministry. It's not just the work of a missionary. It's the work of every parent, the work of every employee, the work of every employer. Everything we do, as Paul states in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, is done as service to God. We are still cultivating it. We're still keeping it. We might not live in the garden, but it's still the same effort. This language is important to understand both in terms of that labor but also in keeping up that imagery of the temple. It's of note perhaps to remember that this language also is commonly used in the Old Testament to describe the work of temple servants. Some commentators pick up on these exact same words to guard and serve, to cultivate and keep, are translated in passages like Numbers 3, 7 through 8 and Numbers 8, 25 and 26 to summarize the activity of the priests. So when elsewhere Moses describes the work of the priests in the temple, he uses the same language. I think he does so again in part to connect that work back to the work in the garden. To remind us that regardless of what role we fill, we fill it in direct obedience to our almighty creator and provider. This was where we were designed to live. This is what we were designed to do. This is why work can so quickly become an idol to us. There's a reason why people's entire lives can be wrecked by that idolatry because they're turning work into something it was never intended to be. 
They're removing the concept of work from the entire purpose of work, namely to serve their creator. When you disconnect those two, work feels hopeless, it feels fleeting, it feels meaningless. It's only when it's done for God that this work carries with it its important meaning. That connection to God is made abundantly clear in those last verses we read in verses 16 through 17 where in the midst of the garden we're reminded that there is this additional tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it is the one place that Adam is told you cannot eat from this. You cannot find sustenance from that tree, Adam. This tree, of course, will take on a central role in the fall of man in Genesis 3. But what we must take from it today it's just that basic reminder that, that all that joy of the garden, all the fulfillment that Adam and Eve originally experienced, all of the beauty and wonder and life that they lived in accordance with God was always, from the beginning, dependent upon their submission to God. And so in the middle of this paradise, there is a physical reminder of who's in control here of who it is we serve, of why it is that our service is so important. It's a reminder again that we cannot attempt to escape out of that hand of God. We cannot attempt to find happiness in our efforts regardless of how morally upright they might be. If it's disconnected from obedience to God, it is meaningless and it is death. This again is so vitally important for us to remember as we consider our own obedience today for many of us, can do a great deal of, of good things in our lives. Many of us might be good employees, good parents in terms of protecting our kids, raising them up to obey authority and be respectful. Many of us can do things that the world around us will applaud, but if we do not do it with a heart of submission before God, it is death. It is disobedience. It is a wicked act. If we're to find meaning in any of that then, if we're really going to try to find security in our daily life, it must be security that is done in the right way in regular service to our Creator, to our God. This was by God's design. He prepared the garden for man. He created man. He provided for man. And He gives man His specific calling. And finally, as we finish our story, we're reminded that He places man then in these necessary relationships, which is our third and final point, picking up in verse 18 through 25. There we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper, a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took out of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib from which he had taken from the man and brought her to man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined as husband and wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As the story continues, we find really 
the first shocking declaration in this story. For for the first time, after Moses has depicted this good and beautiful creation, a creation that is pleasing to the Creator, we see this shocking declaration of God in verse 18, in which God sees Adam alone and He says, this is not good. This should cause every reader to, to pause and to take stock as to, to what God could possibly mean by this. How could God, the creator of all things, look at his creation and see it as, as failing to live up to the standards that he has in place? What's important to understand here is, is God is not admitting some mistake he has made. Rather, he's speaking to the fact that his creation is not yet complete. He is declaring that in order to reflect his image fully, man needs someone else. Namely, in this original story, man needed woman. And so God says that he will design a helper suitable for Adam. We'll talk about that helper here in a moment, but we see immediately this helper was not found throughout all the rest of creation. It is believed by many, and I think it's correct, that this is one of the reasons why God brings animals before Adam to show him how different, how unique he is from everything else, that while we might claim that a dog is a man's best friend today, the dog can't quite live up to the helper that Adam so desperately needed, nor could any other creature, nor could anything else. In all of creation, Adam needed something just as unique as he was. Of course, the solution to that need is Eve, the helper. We see the account of her creation as God takes the rib out of Adam and fashions from that this first woman. And immediately what is clear is that this woman is seen again as, as incredibly valuable, as entirely unique, as just as valuable, just as unique as Adam himself was as the first man. We spoke of the equality that Eve had with Adam last week. That equality, again, is essential to understand, and it's represented here in the fact that she's made from the same stuff as Adam. She's not fashioned from anything lower than him. She is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. But as we mentioned briefly last week, we must repeat that her value is not just tied in her equality, or in the fact that she is equal to Adam. Her value is tied in those differences as well. For in completing Adam, it's significant that God didn't just make another Adam. He didn't make just anyone. He made a woman. A woman who is different in a variety of ways from Adam, from man. We understand, of course, that women were made with a different body, with a different makeup. We understand this just purely by looking at them, but we also come to understand it as we study human anatomy today that this, this speaks of other things as well in terms of personality differences, in terms of many strengths and weaknesses that oftentimes are different. Most importantly in the scope of Genesis 2, though, we see this difference is, is declared in the role that Eve plays. That role being helper. Now again, in our culture, this carries with it some sense of of some negative connotation as if this is saying Eve is lesser than Adam, but that could not be further from the truth. For helper in Scripture carries with it significant value. We see God Himself being declared to be the helper of Israel, bringing help to Israel when they cannot accomplish that which God has called them to accomplish. 
by speaking of Eve as the helper, what Scripture is reminding us of is, is Eve, or woman, was not just someone created to keep Adam company. What is being declared here is what the man lacked, the woman is able to accomplish. Adam could not accomplish the will that God had set before him, could not accomplish his calling without Eve. He needed her desperately. Time does not permit us to discuss, again, how important this is to remember in our culture today. For we live in a culture that either attempts to just ignore these differences and pretend that gender is just some sort of social construct, attempt to lump men and women in the same category for everything and then act shocked and surprised when the result is abuse. And it's important to remember also in our own culture when oftentimes we can make far too much of these differences. When we as Christians can fall into some outdated trope of saying how men are from Mars and women are from Venus and boy, I can never understand a woman. She's so bizarre. We just sound moronic when we make these statements. And oftentimes, as men, when we say this, we are denigrating the value of women. We oftentimes can speak of women as if they're crazy, illogical, overly emotional. In so doing, we're speaking wickedly of someone who is made equally in the image of God. Within the church, we must proudly hold to these differences. But we must do so in a way that never suggests that man or woman are somehow lesser in value. They are both equal, they are both essential in fulfilling the calling. And while there are differences in terms of the roles that we fulfill, both within the family and specifically within church, we understand that all those roles are essential. And so we lift this up, we encourage these differences. We strive to maintain the beauty and value of both man and women, and we do so because we understand it's within this relationship that Adam and Eve are created. Now, of course, there are a number of results that stem from this in our own text. We see, namely, this results in the creation of marriage. Moses here makes a sort of side note, a commentary on this point, and says, because of this, or for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife. Here then in this original creation, we see the establishment of the institution of marriage. But we must see even further than that is as glorious as that institution was from the beginning. The end goal of these differences, the end goal of creation of man and woman was not to create some new family structure. It was to be a foreshadowing of something even better than marriage. For Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that this entire relationship and the way it is to work together in the midst of that equality and those differences ultimately is intended not just to bring flourishing homes, but it's intended to be a picture of the gospel. For Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32, the mystery is great, that is the mystery of two becoming one. But he says, I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Here again, we could spend a great deal of time explaining what this means and why it's so important to understand this, but from the get-go, what it forces us to appreciate is that again, in our original design, humanity was created to live in relationship. First and foremost, this speaks of marriage, but as we spoke of last week, this ultimately speaks to the general need of community. It reminds us that you are not enough on your own. You need this. Husbands, you need your wife. 
Wives, you need your husbands. Single people, you need the family of God. We are all equally dependent upon one another. And apart from those relationships, we are cut off from that which ultimately brings meaning. We're failing to accomplish that which God has called us to accomplish. From the get-go, Moses tells us that we are most at home by God's design than when we are living in God's hand, when we are in close proximity to him. We are only at home when we're living in service to God and we're only at home when we are living in proper relationships with fellow image bearers of God. It is when all these things are in our place that we come to that shocking statement of verse 25 that man and wife existed without shame and joy and peace and security. It's hard to imagine how things could possibly go wrong. But of course, we'll see how they go wrong. And yet what is so glorious in this picture, again, is that Moses does not give the story so that we can all wish we could have been around when the Garden of Eden was in existence. That's not the meaning. For as glorious as this picture was, it was just a, a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the greater reality that God had always had in mind for his people. We see the Israelites experience that in part in the promised land, but again, it was fleeting. It is only when we come to the coming of Jesus Christ who fulfills these promises that we see rest brought to us once again, and it is only when we are brought into eternal communion with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in that final temple, in that final garden, that we experience this peace fully for the first time. As we consider these things, unbelievers... Again, as odd as it might sound, I pray you feel uncomfortable in this world. I pray that in those moments when you feel foreign, when you feel out of place, that you might not ignore that, but hold on to it and ask yourself, why, even in the midst of seeming happiness, do you feel so discontent? Why is it never enough? The reason for it, unbelievers, is because you were designed for so much more. You're designed not just for friendships with other fallen creatures. You were designed to be in communion with the eternal, perfect, loving Father of all creation. But that relationship can only be experienced through your own repentance, confessing your sins and coming home through Jesus Christ. I pray you do that today, and if you have questions, please let us know. For my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray yet again we might see this image and truly be amazed by the goodness of God. Be amazed by the goodness of his creation. Might we view the beauty of creation around us with the eyes of a child? Might we daily be struck with awe? But let us also consider this home of man and use it as a means to really examine our own relationships. Are we living daily on dependence of God? Are we living daily submitting to his will? Are we living daily building up and exploring the relationships that God has designed us to live in? If not, let us confess our sins and come back to him. Let us, believers, embrace every moment we have of comfort here in this world. But let us embrace it knowing that this is not some weekly act of nostalgia, but these moments of joy are taste of what is yet to come. And let us pray that God brings that into existence soon. Father in heaven, we do thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture of the garden. 
The world still desperately needs to hear this message of Genesis 2. But just as importantly, the world needs to hear the message of Christ in the New Testament. All of us, God, were designed to live with you. But God, that is lost because of sin. And so we know that we can only come home, we can only experience the joy that you've designed us to enjoy if we come home through Jesus Christ, who gave up his life as a sacrifice on our behalf, who rose again and offers us newness of life. And so I pray every single person here might do that today. I pray that you do not allow individuals who have not yet done that to leave this place without doing that first. For the rest of us, God, might we be deeply encouraged, might we be reminded of the beautiful future that lies ahead of us, God, and might we be awestruck with the fact that as beautiful as the Garden of Eden was, it will pale in comparison to the garden you are preparing for us now. We look forward to that day of entrance and being with you, God, and we pray that it might be today. Please make it so, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.